Blog Talk Radio. sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free book by John called None Other, Discovering the God of the Bible. This detailed look at God's character can strengthen your trust in the Lord and deepen your love for Him. Request your free book by writing to noneother at gty.org. That's noneother at gty.org. The offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2018. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's Grace to You Bible teacher John MacArthur. 
As we come now to the Word of God, we are looking at a subject that is vital in Scripture. Not the first coming of our Lord, but as we approach the Christmas season, we're looking at the second coming of our Lord. He promised that He would come back. The angel said the day that Jesus ascended, the same Jesus whom you have seen go in like manner shall come again. And that is the Christian's hope, the the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is clear about that and um, has much to say about the end of human history. We need to understand what Scripture teaches, even though for some strange reason it is avoided by even many preachers. We live in an increasingly secular world. We have probably more atheists now than any time in the history of our nation. seems to be a global phenomenon that genuine Christianity and confidence in what the Bible says is uh, diminishing, not in the sense of the true church, but in the sense of cultural acceptance of what Scripture teaches. As the culture we live in gets more and more secular, it moves further and further away from the Bible. And consequently, it moves further and further into emptiness. Philosophers and historians have always struggled with the ultimate question. And the ultimate question is simply this. Why are we here? Where are we going? What's the purpose of history? What's the purpose of human existence? What is the meaning of life? And even though we've made scientific and technological advances, we don't seem to have made advances in terms of morality or being able to sustain relationships meaningfully. Where is human life headed? Is it headed anywhere? Is there any point? Is there any purpose? Is there any end to this succession of events apparently leading nowhere. Does life have a goal? Or are we just protoplasm waiting to become manure? Just a long evolutionary joke. One writer says, our generation is strangled by fear. And it is this kind of existential fear, this kind of transcendent fear, fear of man and what man will do based on what he has done in the past in self-destruction, fear of the future, fear of the direction in which we are being driven seemingly against our will and against our desires. There is a cry for illumination. There's a cry for understanding There's a cry for an answer to this existential question of what does it all mean and is there an end to this? But there doesn't seem to be an answer. Certainly for the secularists, there is no answer at all. There are three possible views of history that are offered if you just kind of reduce them all to the simplest form. The first would be that history is cyclical that basically it just goes around in a circle chasing its own tail. It uh, doesn't move forward in any linear sense. It just cycles and spirals back through the same 
things. There is a, an expression of this somewhat cynical view of human history expressed in Ecclesiastes 1.9. This is the ancient view. It says, that which has been is that which will be, and that which has been is that which will be done, so there is no thing new under the sun. That's the cynicism of the preacher in Ecclesiastes. A couple of verses later, he says, all is vanity and striving after wind. This particular view is popular in the ancient Greek era, that history was just a series of movements around the same cycle, going absolutely nowhere. This is Hinduism with its reincarnations in that cycle. This is um, in Hinduism called samsara. This is also characteristic of New Age thought. But in this worldview, there is no advance. We're not going anywhere. We're achieving nothing. We're contributing to nothing. We mean nothing. We have no significance. That doesn't work for some people. And so a second option is um, naturalism. Naturalism would say that history really is linear and human life is linear it's not going around in endless circles. It's actually moving in some direction. It is not repetitive, but it still doesn't really identify any meaning to it because naturalism is, by definition, atheistic. That's why it's called naturalism instead of supernaturalism. So this is just another view that says we aren't going in circles. We're going in a straight line. But the straight line is going nowhere. There's no end to the straight line. There's no purpose. There's no goal. Everything is meaningless. This perspective was articulated by Bertrand Russell, the celebrated British philosopher, who said there is no law of cosmic progress. From evolution, there is no ultimately optimistic philosophy that can be validly inferred. There's no way to know why we're here, where we're going, where we're going to end up. Contemporary zealous, popular atheist Richard Dawkins puts it this way, quote, evolution has no long-term goal. There is no long-distance target, no final perfection to serve as a criterion for selection, end quote. We're just going forward into nothingness. That's not a very satisfying view, even as the first view is not satisfying. But there's a third one, and that's the biblical view. The Christian view of history stands in utter opposition to those two views. The Christian view of history says God created us with a purpose in mind, and history is His story. And he pre-wrote it in eternity past, and now it's playing out in precise accordance with his will and purpose. And it has a direction. It had a very clear beginning, as revealed in the book of Genesis, and it has a very clear ending, as revealed throughout the Scripture and culminating in the book of Revelation. We are significant. We are going somewhere. 
And that somewhere has been identified definitely by God. And in this movement through time that we call human history, there is a central figure. And that central figure is the Lord Jesus Christ. His first coming was in humility so that He might die for the sins of His people and rise again to give them eternal life. After His first coming, He ascended back into heaven and promised to return. The next time He comes, He doesn't come in humility. He comes in glory. He doesn't come to die. He comes to reign. He doesn't come to rescue. He comes to condemn. The second coming of Christ is where history is headed. It is moving rapidly to that end. That end has been eternally designed by God with absolute detail, much of which is written on the pages of Scripture. We don't need to be in the dark about the purpose of mankind or the meaning of history if we just read the Word of God, the Holy Scripture. But to sum it up and simplify it, history is headed toward what the Bible calls the Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord. That is a technical term used in Scripture to define the final judgment. The final judgment. It is called the Day of the Lord because it is the end of man's day. Man's day. We're living in man's day. Obviously, we are under the power of Satan and his demons. But still, we operate with a measure of freedom in this world to create our own environment. This is man's day. Man is in charge. Man is in charge essentially at every level. This is the kingdom of man within the kingdom of darkness, which is under the ruler, Satan. This is man's day. You can look at history and see what man has made of it. But what is coming is the Lord's day. It will be a day of cataclysmic judgment. That judgment will fall on all who have not repented of their sins and embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior. What you do with Jesus Christ is the determiner of your eternal destiny. Now, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and this is the epistle of Paul that we're looking at, he introduces to us in the opening three verses this term, the day of the Lord. Let me read those verses to you. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. There in verse 2, we are introduced to the day of the Lord. That's where history is going. The day of the Lord is not a popular theme for preachers. It should be, but it isn't. Preachers want to make people feel good. 
They want to affirm people. They want people to believe that they are loved, even by God. They want to bring comfort. So it's not popular to preach on wrath or vengeance or judgment or condemnation or hell, but it is essential. The day of the Lord is coming and obviously is nearer than it has ever been. Now, Paul was faithful to preach the day of the Lord. He had been in Thessalonica a relatively brief period of time. We don't know exactly how many weeks, but maybe a few months, nothing more. And in that brief time of presenting the gospel to pagans in that city in the Roman Empire, Paul had taught them about the day of the Lord. He had warned everyone about the day of the Lord. His ministry was to preach the gospel, and that encompassed a warning to those who do not believe the gospel of the inevitable coming day of judgment. So obviously had he taught them this, even in the brief time that he was with them, that it appears several times in his letter back to them. Look at 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9, you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come in preaching the gospel to them he told them about the wrath to come eternal wrath the day of the Lord and subsequently following the day of the Lord eternal punishment in the lake of fire he told them that so that they were waiting for his son from heaven who would come to rescue them from the wrath to come. You could say they were waiting for the snatching away and they were waiting to be rescued from God's final day of the Lord, wrath. Again, in chapter 2 and verse 16, he refers in that verse to people filling up the measure of their sins and the wrath of God coming upon them in the most severe way to the utmost. In chapter 4 and verse 6, again, he says, The Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. This was essential to his ministry of preaching the gospel to warn people about the wrath to come. Chapter 5, where we are, look at verse 9. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the gospel comes to those who are told about the coming wrath and want to know how to escape it. Over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says to this same group, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints. 
very strong language. That second letter, just very, very brief. And he takes up a large chunk of that letter to warn about the coming wrath of God on all who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he was a faithful pastor. Even with a brief time in Thessalonica, he made sure they understood that salvation saved them from not just a lack of purpose in their life, but eternal wrath. As we saw last time in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, believers will be snatched out. The Lord is going to meet us in the air. The next event on God's prophetic calendar is the snatching of the church. Those that are dead, their bodies will come out of the grave first if they're believers, and those that are alive will be caught together with them and taken to heaven. We meet the Lord in the air. This is not the Lord coming to earth to judge. This is not the Lord coming to earth to set up His kingdom. There's no judgment in that event. That event is mentioned in John 14 and 1 Corinthians 15 and this passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. No judgment. That's the snatching out of the church that we talked about in previous messages. We will be snatched and kept from the hour of wrath the hour of judgment. That is the next event. And Paul wanted to tell these Thessalonian believers that they would be rescued from that, whether they were dead or alive, they would be taken up in that rapture so that verse 18 says he could comfort them because some of them were sad thinking that the believers who died would miss that event. And the Lord told them through Paul, no, the dead will rise first in their glorified bodies and the rest of us will be joined to the Lord in the air and will go to heaven to be with Him in the place that He is preparing for us now. That is the snatching of believers, all believers across the face of the globe. There's no sign for that event. There's no timing for that event. There are no preliminary events. It's what we call imminent. It could happen at any time. And believers since New Testament times have been living in anticipation of that event. You say that's 2,000 years, yes, but that's on a human side. In God's kingdom, a day is as a 1,000 years, Peter says, and a 1,000 years is a day. And why is God waiting? You say He's waiting until all the elect redeemed have come to faith. So we saw that the believers will be taken out. Then what happens? What about all the unbelievers that are left in the world? We pick that up in chapter 5, verse 1. Now as to, that's a transitional phrase. He is using it quite frequently in his writings to show that we're moving to a new subject. Now we're going from the rapture or snatching of the church to the day of the Lord. We've gone from the comfort that comes to believers to the discomfort that ought to come to non-believers who are faced with this reality. This is the final wrath. This is where history is going. The Lord began human history when He created Adam and Eve. He's in control of it. It has a terminus point. Right now it's in the control of man. This is man's day as he functions within the kingdom of darkness led by Satan. But soon will come the end of man's day and the beginning of the Lord's day, the day of the Lord. Now, in the passage we're going to be looking at, verses 1 to 11 over the next few weeks, there are three features that 
Paul wants us to understand. The Lord's Day, its coming, its character, and its completeness. For now, we'll just talk about its coming, okay? That's obvious. Verse 2. You yourselves know full well the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. It's so interesting that he says in verse 1, you have no need of anything to be written to you, and then he doubles back and says it again, you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come. So on a negative sense, he says you don't need more information. On a positive sense, he says you are full, fully well informed. Brethren, he's talking to believers, he's introducing them to an understanding of the day of the Lord. He says, I, I don't need to tell you any more than you already know. We've already shown you in this letter that they knew about the wrath to come. They knew about the vengeance of God, the wrath of God that was coming upon unconverted sinners, and they were aware of that, and that was part of the gospel appeal, that they didn't want to be caught in that final judgment, that everlasting perdition and punishment. So Paul moves to the next eschatological event. After believers are taken up to be with the Lord in heaven, what happens on earth is the day of the Lord begins. Now, back to verse 1. It is basically described as the times and the epochs. Those are plurals, the times and the epochs. There are some people who take a simplistic view that history just goes on. These are Christian people. just goes on, and at one moment, one point in time, Jesus comes and takes us to heaven, judges the ungodly, and that's all it is. It's just one great second coming event. This... Um, clearly indicates that is not an accurate interpretation. Because involved in the day of the Lord are the times and the seasons, very specific times, plural, days, weeks, years, even centuries. The times, that's chronos, chronological time, calendar time, clock time. So this event is going to have times, a day, a week, a month, a year, a century, even a millennium. All of that is going to be seen in the book of Revelation as John is given the revelation of the full extent of the day of the Lord from the time it begins until the time it ends. And he speaks of it sometimes in days, sometimes in weeks, sometimes in months, sometimes in years, and even in a millennium. So this is not a single event. The coming of the Lord and the day of the Lord is an event with many events inside of it. And we would know that as well, not only from the times, but the epics. That's kairos. That means time not in the sense of chronology, but time in the sense of epics or events. So there will be many times and many events. In this day of the Lord that is coming, there will be a beginning point, which is the snatching away of the church, the rapture of the church. There will be the time of tribulation that comes on the earth. There will be the time of great tribulation, which is the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. 
there will be the rise of Antichrist and the false prophet described in the book of Revelation. There will be the salvation of Israel, also described in the book of Revelation. There will be sealed judgments that begin to be broken in uh, Revelation chapter 6. And out of the seventh seal will come seven trumpet judgments. Out of the seventh trumpet judgment will come seven bold judgments. And all of these judgments are described. and They are epics. They are aspects. They are features of the second coming times. There also will be the return of Christ. And when Christ comes back, there will be the battle of Armageddon, a bloodbath that will take place centered in the country of Israel. There will be the sheep and the goats judgment described by our Lord. There will be the binding of Satan and demons for the duration of the millennial kingdom. There will be the release of them at the end to gather a final rebellion. There will be destruction of that rebellion. There will be the great white throne after the millennial kingdom. There will be the final dispatch of Satan and his angels and all unbelievers to the lake of fire. And then there will be the complete destruction of our entire universe, followed by the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. All of those are the epics inside the times that make up the day of the Lord, the return of Christ. The question that comes to our minds always, and it came to the disciples' minds, is, when is this going to happen? How long do we have to wait? The disciples who were sitting with Jesus looking at the city of Jerusalem before His crucifixion, sitting looking from the Mount of Olives to the Temple Mount, heard Jesus say, this is going to be destroyed. This whole thing is coming down. Not one rock will be left on another. And in response to that, the disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They always wanted to know when, 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 when. What do we look for? In Acts again, chapter 1, they said in verse 6, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? We get very preoccupied with time. When is it going to happen? But Paul says in verse 1, you have no need of anything to be written to you. You don't need to know that. You don't need to know that. You've been taught as much as there is to teach. You use that same phrase, by the way, in chapter 4, verse 9. As to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Here he says the same thing again. You yourselves know full well. You don't have any need of anything to be written to you. So not only did they know all they needed to know about the love of God, they knew all they needed to know about the wrath of God. In 2 Thessalonians 2.5 he says, While I was with you, I was telling you all these things. Every faithful preacher necessarily is a judgment preacher. But they always wanted to know the time. Matthew 24, 36, our Lord said, No one knows the time. He repeated it in, again in Mark 13. No one knows the time. And in Acts 1, 7, it's not for you to know the times and the epics. Use the same exact phrase that appears here in Acts 1, 7. The chronos and the kairos. 
The Father has fixed these in His own authority. No one knows but the Father in heaven. We just need to know it's coming. We don't need to know when it's coming. Every generation needs to live in the light of the reality that it could come at any time. We should live in expectancy and anticipation. We should be warning people all the time of what is coming. So let's talk about the first point. It's coming. It's coming. Verse 2, you yourselves know full well. Acrobos, good word, means perfectly, completely, accurately, exactly, precisely. Again, this is an indication that Paul had taught them about the wrath to come. Even though he was with them only a few months and they were Gentiles, he made sure that he told them why they needed salvation. And it wasn't just to fix up their life. It was to rescue them from the wrath to come. And he reminds them and us that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. He warned them and he said, thief doesn't announce his arrival. Thief doesn't give you warning. I'll be there between 2 and 3 in the morning. Make sure you unlock the door, open the safe, put the jewelry on the floor. The thief does not announce his arrival. He comes in the night when you don't expect him to come. The day of the Lord is like that thief. God is not a thief, but he comes when not expected. In 2 Peter 3.10, it takes us all the way to the end of the millennium. And it says even there, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and all its works be burned up. That's the destruction of the whole universe at the end of the millennium. The Lord will even come in that day at an unknown moment. The rapture is at an unknown moment. The second coming of Christ at the end of the seven-year tribulation to start His kingdom is at an unknown moment. And even the final coming when the entire universe melts in an atomic implosion, that too is at an unknown moment. Each of those is something unexpected, like a thief coming in the night unannounced. The point of all of this and keeping this from us is so that every generation would live in the light of the possibility of that reality in their own time. Back in Matthew 24, verse 36, our Lord says of that time in the future, of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. It just means life was going on as usual. They were Marriage is a plan for the future. They were living as if they had a future. They didn't understand in the days of Noah. They didn't understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. It's going to be that unexpected. And that specifically is a reference to His return to earth, not the snatching, but at the end of the tribulation, his return to earth. Even that is going to be at a time no one knows. There's always this call to readiness. And by the way, 
the coming of Christ to earth, seven years at least after the snatching, is pretty well laid out. I mean, we know from the rapture to the return of Christ with His saints, they go to, we go to heaven with Him, we stay with Him, marriage, supper of the Lamb, we receive our rewards, we come back when He returns. That's what it's talking about in Matthew 24. That moment is unknown, even though there are many details laid out before that second coming. For example, in Matthew 24, our Lord tells them in verse 5, before that happens, um, many will come and say, I'm the Christ. You'll have false Christs. Verse 6, you'll have wars, rumors of wars, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, earthquakes. And much of this is described in more detail in the book of Revelation. Verse 11, false prophets, lawlessness, verse 12. The gospel of the kingdom at the same time will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Then the end will come. Also, during that time of tribulation, there will be an event called the abomination of desolation, verse 15, described in detail in the book of Daniel when there's a desecration of the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. And that'll start a persecution of the Jews who have to flee to the mountains, verse 16 says. Verse 24 talks about more false Christs, false prophets. And then immediately, verse 29, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. Powers of heaven will be shaken and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet. They will gather together His elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Those are the people who've been saved during the tribulation. There'll be people from every tongue and tribe and nation saved during that time, that seven-year period of the day of the Lord. So even when you have events that lead up to it, the very hour, the very moment is unknown. And that's by divine design so that we warn everyone of the imminence of these events that it could happen any time. It's not pushed off into some nebulous tomorrow. Listen to Revelation 16:15. Behold, says the Lord, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. In other words, metaphorically, you better have your clothes on and be ready when he comes. The thief in the night when unexpected. Now, let me give it to you again simply. The next event on God's clock is the snatching away of believers. After that, all the believers are gone. All that are left on the earth are unbelievers. And then the day of the Lord begins to break out. Described in general terms in Matthew 24, also in Luke's parallel passage. And described in detail in Revelation 6 to 18. And that's the day of the Lord breaking out on earth. Now, we want to understand something of the character of this day of the Lord. So let's look at it. The day of the Lord appears four times in the New Testament. Acts 2.20 in this passage, 2 Thessalonians 2.2 and 2 Peter 3.10, which I referred to a moment ago. But it appears 19 times in the Old Testament. That's its greatest usage. 
And whenever a Bible writer, New or Old Testament, speaks of the day of the Lord, it's always the same. Always the same. So listen to what Scripture says about the day of the Lord. Isaiah 2.12 For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it will be brought low. Isaiah 13.6 Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Isaiah 13.9 Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. Jeremiah 46.10 for this is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, that he may avenge himself on his adversaries. Joel 1.15, For the day of the Lord is at hand, it shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Joel 2.11, For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Joel 2.31, The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Amos 5.18, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, for what good is the day of the Lord to you? Amos 5.20, Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Malachi 4.5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Zephaniah 1.14, The great day of the Lord is near, it is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. In Zephaniah 1.15, that day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Six times the day of the Lord is referred to as the day of doom. Three times it is referred to as the day of vengeance. Revelation 6.17 calls it the great day of His wrath always refers to cataclysmic judgments by God on sinners. It is the culmination of God's fury and wrath. It is climactic. Now, God's wrath operates in life all the time through natural expressions. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. You live a certain kind of life, you reap a certain wrath. There is cataclysmic wrath in the world today brought about by natural phenomenon like earthquakes and fires and tsunamis and floods and those kinds of things that catapult people into eternity. There is the wrath of God in Romans 1 where people choose to reject God and He gives them over to immoralities, homosexuality, a reprobate mind. That is the wrath of God released on a culture. But those elements of God's wrath come generally through natural means. Day of the Lord wrath, in its ultimate form, is supernatural. It is supernatural. The New Testament calls it, Luke 17, 24, His day. It is called the day of wrath, the day of wrath and revelation in uh, Romans 2, 5. The great day of God Almighty, Revelation 16, 14. 1 Peter 2, 12, a day of visitation when God visits in judgment. Always a time of the fury of God released on those who reject His Son. Now it is to be distinguished, and you have to mark this, it is to be distinguished from other New Testament days, the day of Christ. There is the day of Christ in Philippians. There is the day of the Lord Jesus in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. 
and there's the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.8. That's different. The day of Christ in any of those forms always has to do with believers meeting Christ. So when we're snatched out of this earth and taken to heaven, that's the day of Christ. When we're with Him and He rewards us and gives us our eternal inheritance. The day of Christ always looks at the believer before his Lord at the Bema where we receive the reward for what we've done for him. So before the day of the Lord, there's the day of Christ for believers. After the day of the Lord, there's one other phrase, and it's the day of God. The day of God, Second Peter 3.12, and it's referring to eternity. After God creates the new heaven and the new earth, it is the final and forever day of God. He reigns and rules. So the day of Christ for believers, the day of God, when God rules in eternity, and in between all the judgments fall under the day of the Lord. Always, always something to fear. Listen to Ezekiel 30, verse 3. For the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. Joel 2.1, the day of the Lord is coming, it is at hand. Joel 3.14, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Obadiah 15, the day of the Lord is upon all the nations and is near. Zephaniah 1.7, the day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. Zechariah 14.1, the day of the Lord is coming. Prophets always spoke of it as near, at hand. Now you say, well, that was a long time ago and a long time before the actual day of the Lord. And so I want to help you with that. The day of the Lord is always a cataclysmic judgment by God. But the prophets saw a near and far aspect to the day of the Lord. We don't have time this morning to do it, but if you'd look at Joel sometime, you will find that Joel opens talking about a day of the Lord that is historic the invasion of the Assyrians that occurred about 100 years after the prophecy in 701. And this was a time of horrific judgment. God used the Assyrians to punish idolatrous Israel. Joel also talks about the day of the Lord that came on Judah, the southern kingdom, 605 to 586. So in the first couple of chapters, Joel talks about the historic day of the Lord, but when you come into chapter 3 of Joel's prophecy, something very, very different is going on. I will just read you a few verses. Verse 9, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Arouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords, your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness the Lord roars from Zion, utters His voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth tremble, but the Lord is a refuge for His people. That's the far 
eschatological day of the Lord. So Joel saw in chapters 1 and 2 a historic preview of what that final day of the Lord would look like. Obadiah, exactly the same thing. One chapter, the first 14 verses, looking at the destruction of Edom, the nation that came out of Esau, a destruction that came about 100 years later through a coalition of enemy nations. And then in verse 15, Obadiah leaps forward to the final judgment of all the nations in that final day of the Lord. Zephaniah does the same thing. In chapter 1, he talks about the coming Babylonian exile of Judah, which is about 15 years after his prophecy. And then in chapter 3, starting in verse 8, he just launches, does Zephaniah into the final eschatological day of the Lord. So the prophets looked at those historic judgments as previews of that final one. Isaiah does exactly the same thing. Chapter 1, he talks about the Babylonian exile about 100 years later. And in chapter 2, starting in verse 12, he moves to the final day of the Lord. So you have previews throughout the prophetic writings of the Old Testament of what that day will be like. The eschatological day stands in the background at a distant horizon from the historic event. The day of the Lord was near because God was about to act. And He acted in historical events, and they were all in anticipation of Him acting in that final eschatological event, which is described in far more grandiose, comprehensive, destructive terms. This day of the Lord is going to come, verse 2, just like a thief in the night, unexpectedly, suddenly, unwelcomed, and doing damage, harm. It's going to come in the night. What about us? I love verse 4. You, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. We're not there. We've been snatched out. We're not there, but many souls will be. Paul told his people not only about the good that was going to happen to them, but the horrors that were going to come on the world. That's how you preach the gospel. The good news is only ultimate good news, existential good news, eternal good news, if the consequence of rejecting it are also eternal, right? Father, we thank You this morning for sending Your Son the first time to die on the cross and pay the penalty for our sins to provide eternal life for us and salvation, forgiveness of sins, heaven, glory. And we lift up our voice and say, Gloria, in excelsis Deo. Glory to You in the highest. Thank You for giving us the gift of peace with You and peace in our hearts. Thank You for saving us from the day, Your day, the day of the Lord. Thank You that our hope is in the day of Christ when we meet with our bridegroom and celebrate our eternal union and bliss with Him. We pray, Lord, that we will all understand this and apply it to our hearts. Those of us who are believers, 
Give us a new loving boldness to proclaim the truth about what awaits sinners so that the gospel of salvation and deliverance and rescue has ultimate meaning. And may at the same time we live in the wonderful hope that we will not be part of that. We're not of the darkness. We're of the light. May we live with the ever-present reality that you could come at any moment And we want to be found when you come, diligent, faithful, abounding in every good work to receive a reward that we can then cast at your feet in loving gratitude. Open hearts today from your word being heard. Open hearts today to come to Christ, the only Savior, the only Deliverer, the only ark of safety from coming judgment. Help us to let the world know that all things do not continue as they are. Judgment is coming. And the only way to be prepared is through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Do that work in hearts, we pray, with thankful and grateful souls. We offer you our praise. We are worthy of that judgment, but we are not standing in our own worthiness. We stand in the worthiness of Christ who covers us with his righteousness, having paid the penalty for our sins. And so our hearts are comforted because of the truth that we know. But we also must realize that the terror of the Lord persuades men. May we persuade people to embrace the gospel by showing them the terror of the day of the Lord, inescapable, other than through Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible Teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. And for details about the Masters University where John serves as president, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. That was John MacArthur with Understanding the Day of the Lord, Part 1. And I want to take some time to uh, talk about eschatology, that's like the end of the day's teaching, and um, uh, John Carter, he's uh, pre-trib rapture, I mean, they sit, the rapture's going to happen before tribulation, I'm actually uh, more closer to post-trib rapture, and something called pre-millennialism, um, that tell you about those you might already know it, but this is for people who don't know. Uh, or maybe just a refresher for you, too. And this 
this one I got from, this is an article from CARM.org, C-A-R-M dot O-R-G, and it's called, Is the Rapture Biblical? And it's by Matt Slick. It says, the rapture is a teaching that at, at or before the return of Christ, the Christians who are alive on earth will be transformed into resurrected bodies and literally caught, be caught up into the clouds to meet Jesus. And then it uses... Um, Matthew twenty four thirty and Acts one eleven. Matthew twenty four thirty says and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then tribes of earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And Acts one eleven says they oh sorry. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand up looking into the sky? The Jesus who has been taken up from heaven will come in the same way as you watched him go into heaven. This is the part where um, where Jesus uh, left and he went in the clouds, and then they were just staring up there. I guess they thought he'd come back. Or waiting for him to come back. And it says, There is a debate as the timing of the rapture. The pre-tribulation rapture doctrine says that the rapture will occur at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period, which immediately precedes the return of Jesus. The mid-tribulation rapture doctrine says that the rapture will occur three and a half years before Christ returns or halfway through the Great Tribulation period of seven years. The pre-wrath position holds that the rapture will occur sometime during the later, latter half of the Tribulation, but prior to God pouring his wrath in a series of judgments and thus well before Christ descends bodily to the earth. The post-trib doctrine says the rapture will occur at the same time as the return of Christ or at the end of the seven-year tribulation. All of these positions fall within the realm of Christian orthodoxy. The verses used to support the doctrine of rapture are as follows. First Thessalonians 4:16-18. For the Lord himself himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And there's 1 Corinthians 15, 20-23. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in our own order. 
Christ the first fruits after that those who are Christ at his coming. And it says first Corinthians fifteen fifty one to fifty two. Behold I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. And it says please note that the verses found in Matthew twenty four and Luke seventeen that deal with the two men in the field and one is taken while the other is left are not dealing with the rapture. This common misunderstanding about those verses upon close examination of the text in Matthew 24 and Luke 17, you will find that the ones who are taken are the wicked. In fact, Jesus' disciples ask, where are they taken? And he gives them an answer. Where the body is, there also will be vultures. The vultures be gathered. And it says, let's see, that's from Luke 17:37. Okay, now we dealt with this is the tribulation, excuse me, the uh, rapture. And now I'll talk about some views about Jesus coming back and ruling and reigning. There's um, basic, let's see, I think there's three basic. Um, it says three basic uh, teachings, and it says um, the millennium is a is this is also from Karma.org. So the millennialism and premillennialism by Matt Slip. The millennium is period the period of time that Jesus reigns as king. There is debate as the nature of the millennium is. It a literal thousand years, or is it a figurative length of time? Below is a chart that simply says two different positions: premillennialism and amillennialism. And let's see, premillennialism is teaching concerning the end time eschatology. It says that there is a future millennium, one thousand years, as mentioned in Revelation 20, where Christ will rule and reign on earth, over the earth. At the beginning of the millennial, millennium, Satan and his angels will be bound and peace will exist on entire earth. At the end of a thousand years, Satan will be released in order to raise an army against Jesus. Jesus will destroy them and then final judgment will take place and place the new heavens and new earth being made. Amunanil is teaching that there are no literal 1,000-year reign of the Christ, of Christ as referred in Revelation 20. It sees the 1,000-year period spoken of Revelation 20 as figurative. Instead, of it teaches that we are in the millennium now and that at the return of Christ, there will be final judgment and heavens and earth will be will then be destroyed and remade. It says the return of Christ. For the Lord himself will descend on heaven 
is descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up in the clouds together and meet the Lord. And and it says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's First Thessalonians four sixteen, and then also chapter five, two. Uh, let's see. Oh, I was saying to uh, read all that, I guess, but I only read the first part. Okay, let's see. Um, second, and then also mentioned Second Peter three ten. But the day of the Lord will come like. A thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So that's all millennials and premillennials. And my, um, please, there are more premillennials that there's literally a thousand rain, thousand years rain comes back and rules the rain and Satan's bound for a thousand years and then released after that for a while and then Jesus um, um, makes it so that uh, the devil and angels they get sent to like a fire and um, my rapture view is uh, post-tribute post-tribulation so I hope that helps uh, with teaching about amillennialism and premillennialism and also rapture and let's see what we're going to do now is I'm going to play a song for you this is called Stand Up here on Trippy Toll Radio by Shadow Hey, yo, they said it was over, man. They said it was over. But it ain't over. We just getting started. Yo, 7,000, we all at. Let's go. Stand up, stand up. If you truly love the son of man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, stand up. Does anybody love the son of man? Trust. Jesus is the king, so his people we will sing. And forever stay worthy is the land. What's up? No surprise, I'm back in your section With Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection More power than gravity His knowledge and strategies confound the academy Bow to his majesty He paid sin salary, took our blame on Calvary Those who love his name spread his fame is the policy All eyes on the mattress price of his sacrifice That's prize, I'm after Christ and rise in the afterlife What, did we forget about the holiness of God or something? Did we forget that God owes us a rod or something? See the snake bruise when Christ came to save dudes who hate truth the gospel is not fake news. Our debt is sin. The gospel sweeter than it's ever been. Ain't nothing changed. Let us sin. We got the medicine. It's still human emergency. The serpent attack. You think Jesus can't save? That's alternative facts. Stand up. Stand up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up. Stand up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the king, so his people we will sing and forever stay worthy is the land. What's up? Stop and listen to my 
my composition. Lots of rhythm, but not tradition. No kind of different. But God's consistent, no contradiction. My proposition. Through crucifixion, he mocked and crippled his opposition. It's not some fiction, I'm spitting. The Son of God is risen. And my incentive for godly living is I'm forgiven. Jesus came to unlock the prison. And through the Spirit, he brings a new birth like an obstetrician. At times I listen, a lot of Christian hip hop is missing. The proposition is my suspicion. We drop the mission. Not to this, but the Word of God is it not sufficient. The doctrine is that the gospel fixes our shot condition. God the Spirit supplies conviction through proper diction. Against the backdrop of our tradition, the gospel glistens. A squad of Christians go out and witness that God's commission. Cause Jesus Christ got the top position, no competition. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing and forever stay worthy is the Lamb. What's up? They want Jesus in the background like elevator music, but we gon' celebrate him, relegate him, we refuse it. They hate Christian hip-hop, I peep myself. They say we too redundant, well let me repeat myself. What I gotta say almost feels too real estate. Sit back and feel the weight of what a real estate. Cause yo, Jesus Christ got me in the real estate. I'm purchased property, I feel like I'm real estate. If the Father wasn't gracious, no sin in him. Again. He came straight blameless, no sin in him. Again. Nothing's been the same since, no sin in him. Again. Fakers lack his fragrance, no sin in him. This is not the picture in a frame to still Jesus. Nah, we serve the rock, the harder than still Jesus. So how are we gonna be silent, let the world still Jesus? When the world and its trends pass away, it's still Jesus. Then. Up, hands up, if you truly love the Son of Man, trust, Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is going to spread across the land, what's up, stand up, hands up, does anybody love the Son of Man, trust, Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the land, what's up, worthy is the land, what's up, life. 
everyone gets to God, but the ones who will be saved from judgment will be those who believed in Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, when we understand the text. That is, when we understand a text in Asanova, that's spelled W-W-U-T-T, when we understand text. And you can find them at, on YouTube at W-W-U-T-T, and then their website, www.utt.com, www.utt.com. And let's see, now I'm going to do some from... Go fish, this one's called stories here on Chupitori.
Jesus ascended into heaven, his disciples asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The disciples believed, as most Jews did, that the Messiah was going to make Israel great again, as it was under Kings David and Solomon. But Jesus said that with the Holy Spirit, you will go into the world preaching the gospel, and this will be done for as long as the Father has determined. In other words, Jesus was saying that the preaching of the gospel will be the revival of Israel. Whoever believes the gospel of Jesus Christ is true Israel. Now, some will decry this as supersessionism. The church has not replaced Israel, they will say. Of course it hasn't. The church is the expansion of Israel. Paul referred to true believers as the Israel of God. Romans 2, 28-29 says, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision a matter of the heart. Romans 9, 6 says, For not all who are descended from Israel, meaning ethnic Israel, belong to Israel, meaning spiritual Israel. In Romans 11, we're given the picture of a cultivated olive tree. Branches have been cut off, and Jews and Gentiles grafted into Christ together. Then verse 26 says, In this way, all Israel will be saved meaning true Israel, all who serve Christ as king, when we understand the text. Once again, now is when we understand text. And now I'm going to play a song from, this is from Shailen, and this is Random Thought Street. Deja vu, right? Hey, yo, I'm back, but nobody was asking where I've been Cause Christ and the music is no longer the hot trend Logic says, well, maybe I should just stop then But I never got into this for a spot in the top ten I do this for one reason Jesus, the true king, son To help God's elect obey Hebrews 3.1 And though the rap world is ever crowded If heaven allows it, I'll keep writing for the 7,000 I know you out there, I still get the emails Against the church of Christ, the gates of hell will never prevail It's founded on the rock, and the gospel never stops So we dropping the topic, whether it's popular or not Sin is not just toxic, and the clock is going to stop God is not to be boxed with the wrath of God is burning hot, we were locked in sin's closet, our conflict was cosmic, God plotted to stop and hit the demonic with a shot, I was copping narcotics, agnostic with a plot, no optics for the knowledge of the God who often not, Jesus rocked me with the gospel and it tied me up in knots, so I hopped in a rocket and met the prophet at the top, yo, that's just another way of saying I met God in the scriptures, but we just gonna let that breathe for a second, you know what I mean, the Bible says he was been forgiven much, loves much, we gonna talk about BC a little bit, my depravity was total, not small like pops, I was chained to Sin, I couldn't take off the locks I thought I was a player A match with the flavor Say I know what the time is But I ain't bet Isaiah I would chuckle daily as I paid for disgrace My eyes were always puffy like I got sprayed with mace I would toot my horn at parties And I would do bars Got so intoxicated I was ready to do Mars Notorious for acting pretty silly In my city Philly Friends hear about it and be like Whoa, did he really? Because I played dirty Bill Lambeer style Through great mercy spirit filled and dear child Went from so gritty To headed to a gold City, and Christ I shine, the world's like no biggie Whatever, time to sing, I'm putting faith on the song 112, displayed in John, the way to respond When his patience runs out, then it's time for the rod, man Microwave, wrath of God, fam That's why, because of Christ, I got mad joy All I'm saying is I used to be a bad boy <laughs> But nowadays, I'm regenerated Born again from above, fam How else 
can I say that went from various vices to a kid that's married to Christ using literary devices to spit is very precise. My conversion to the master was so dramatic. I just wanted to be an ambassador or fanatic. The gospel was my tonic. With Christ I couldn't lose, but to walk with God like Enoch, I knew I couldn't cruise. This walk is a beast, but nothing's greater than the cross. Saw the mark of the east and the raiders of the laws. While power records were choosing to carry G-Unit, I was on that revolutionary theme music. The brothers from the Lou held it down as well, but we noticed the big shift in 2012. Around the time Jackie asked me about Calvinism, Christian hip-hop found a different algorithm and crossed over. Without taking the crossover, made us all sober. Years later, is it all over? Trip asked me if I was still motivated. I was quiet, but I wanted to say no, I hate it. Cause brothers in your camp causing lots of confusion. I love them as brothers in Christ, but not their conclusions. They want to reach the world by all means. Keep pursuing it. But tell me, why they got to diss the church while they doing it? That's what I wanted to say, but I ain't say it though. But no more laying low. I want them to play it slow. And I ain't dissing them. My prayers are the proof. Like Boaz without Ruth is unity without truth. CHH is like gorillas in the mist. With no brotherly love, it's like Philly don't exist. What's happening here? It's a different atmosphere. Cats appear most concerned about a rap career. Brothers overseas being slain in the sand while we're vain in our plan. Taking fame and some fans. And I ain't got time to philosophize. Satan got a plot device. I'm seeing lots of guys apostatize. On top of all that, Donald Trump's the president. It's all good though, cause Jesus Trump's the president. So more than ever, I'm trying to rep the Lord who bled. And we ain't never gonna stop working. The Corey Red. I'm just trying to give a healthy demonstration of theocentric music for the selfie generation. See, the problem is sin, no riddle in it. Cause all sin got I in the middle of it. We're mad to praise and truly evil. We need to be born again without a Matt Damon movie sequel. In the gospel, God addresses our depravity. The lamb slain at Calvary, the depths of his agony. He rose from the grave with abundant grace. And when we come in faith, he'll bring us up from the sunken place. Our sins, decrepit depths, left the mess. No rest was left. Jesus put death to death The beauty of the victory Truly is a mystery The cross of Jesus Christ Is at the nucleus of history Before the cross They were saved on credit After the cross We've been saved on debit Since our champion In the great war suffered We gonna proclaim his death Like the Lord suffer So welcome to the Still Jesus Project Yo, we just getting started And we got a lot left The early church, the early church fathers, the reformers, or us? And the answer is, I suspect that they were probably like more gray matter smarter than we probably are on the whole. But we've got cumulative knowledge. There were many battles that have been fought, Christological battles, soteriological battles that have been fought. And we get to build and learn all of that. And so... Well, I think the dead guys were probably smarter. We have so much information and so much history available to us that we do not want to commit the sin of chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery is the false understanding that we're the smartest generation ever. So we don't have to study the work of other Holy Spirit-filled men. That's a mistake. Look... The reformers made some mistakes along the way, but that doesn't mean that we just throw out the baby with the bathwater. Chronological snobbery also could be called epistemological arrogance, that we, we're just the smartest, we're the brightest, because we live, well, they're dead, 
and look at how advanced we are. So with that in mind, let's go take a look and see how our forefathers interpreted the Bible, because it's going to be a little bit different, mostly, than what we're going to be doing today. First century, it was mostly Christological. When the Bible was read, when people were being taught, Christology was really the focus. And the New Testament, the writers of it, preachers of it, until about 100 had a Christocentric approach to the Bible. They did that a couple of ways. They studied typology. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 tells us that the festival Sabbaths, that they were a fuzzy picture. The fulfillment is in Jesus. So in other words, the festivals and the Sabbath celebrations were all pointing to Jesus. See, we don't unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. The Old Testament points to Jesus. They also studied messianic prophecies to prove that Jesus was the Christ. Now, we want to be Christocentric, too, but we have to be careful that we don't do it at the exclusion of every other theology and doctrine. There's nothing better to study in the Bible than Jesus Christ. As you look at him with unveiled face, you're conformed, transformed from one stage of glory to another. We know God best by studying Jesus, but there's other theologies, and we don't want to forget about those as we go about the business of being Christological. We, we want to be focused on Jesus because that's what the Bible is focused on. Genesis 3.15 is the thesis statement for the Bible. Adam and Eve have sinned. God announces that this is, this is a curse on the planet, but I'm going to send a seed. And this seed is going to crush the head of the serpent, but his heel is going to be bruised. And the rest of the Bible is all about pointing to that seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, so we want to be Christological also. Otherwise, if we aren't reading the Old Testament with Jesus in view, we're going to come up with a sermon series like uh, Management Skills from Nehemiah, Leadership Skills from Nehemiah. There's many books written about that. Uh, the book of Nehemiah was not written about how to run a Fortune 500 company better. Nehemiah is a story of rescue that God is faithful to his promise in the Abrahamic covenant. It's not to be dived into to try to figure out how to manage people. Who's the Goliath in your life? You've heard that sermon, or at least echoes of it. There's just one really big problem. Uh, the story of David and Goliath is not about you fighting our battles. This, I'm not David. And Goliath is not my chemistry exam that I have to face, and that's the giant in my life. No, this is a story about Jesus Christ. David is pointing to Jesus Christ, the greatest king who defeated sin, death, and the devil. That's what David and Goliath is about. Otherwise, you get Who is Your Goliath sermon series. We want to be Christological, and they were in the first century. And then we enter into 200 until the Middle Ages, really until, we're going to say through the Middle Ages, until the time of the Reformers. This is late antiquity, and there were two schools of biblical interpretation, the Alexandrian and the Antiochian. So the Antiochian school stressed a literal historical meaning of the text. Alexandrian school stressed allegorical readings. And frequently, it was at the expense of the literal meaning. What exactly is 
allegorical interpretation. Well, it assumes that the text has a meaning that isn't on the surface, but it's a picture of a deeper meaning. It's a hidden or shrouded meaning. And the Catholic Church, famous for this, this we see this really from 200 on. So let me give you some instances of allegorical interpretation. Please note, this is different than typology. We know that there were Old Testament types of Jesus. And the way we know is because the New Testament says so. If you recall Jesus when talking about the bronze serpent, just as the bronze serpent needs to be, needed to be lifted up, so too must the Son of Man. So Jesus says, that was a picture of me. Peter tells us that the ark is a picture of Jesus. The door is a picture of Jesus. The bread is a picture of Jesus because the New Testament says so. This, this finds meanings that the New Testament does not identify. So, for instance, Uzzah died a physical death by touching the ark in 2 Samuel 6-7. They taught that's a type of dying spiritual death by partaking of the Holy Eucharist unworthily. The Catholic Church teaches that Eve is a type of Mary. In other words, even though the New Testament never says this, the Catholic Church says Eve was a picture of Mary. Pope Gregory the Great's interpretation of the book of Job, quote, the patriarch's three friends denote the heretics. His seven sons are the twelve apostles. I don't know how that math works. His seven thousand sheep are God's faithful people, and his three thousand humpback camels are the depraved Gentiles. That's allegorical interpretation. A fellow named Johannes Cochias I think, from the 17th century. Adam's awakening out of his sleep typifies Jesus' resurrection. Samson's meeting of a lion on the way prefigured Christ's meeting of Saul on the road to Damascus. Now, that allegorical interpretive approach was used a lot throughout the Middle Ages, and then came an event called, and this is our, our next era of hermeneutics, something called the Protestant Reformation. What did they do they decided, we're going to read the Bible, understanding the genres that we're in. What did the original author intend to say? Uh, we're not going to go looking for fuzzy pictures all over the place. But that doesn't mean that they fully rejected allegorical interpretation. We should be aware of that. Luther said this, He who either fabricates allegories without discrimination or follows such as are fabricated by others is not only deceived, but also hence... Allegories either must be avoided entirely or must be attempted with the utmost discrimination and brought into harmony with the rule in use by the apostles. So both Luther and Calvin were nuts about allegory, but they didn't reject it wholesale. We are. There are no allegories in the Bible. And even when Paul says this is an allegory, it doesn't mean that that was not an actual historical event. An allegory is that it could be that it's a, a fictitious story with a life lesson. No, when the Bible says this happened, it actually happened. So Luther and Calvin moved us away from allegorical, but it still lives on today. That was from Wretched, and you can find them on YouTube as Wretched, W-R-E-T-C. C-H-E-D, and also their website, wretched.org, W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D.O-R-G, wretched.org.
and Ilsa Mimos Control is here on Triple Toll Radio. I'm going to play a song from Go Fish. This is called Fruit of the Spirit. Ready? Okay! find aliens? This is Ken Ham, CEO of the ministry behind the popular Answers Bible curriculum. Millions of dollars are spent each year in the search for extraterrestrial life. Yet despite decades of searching, no evidence of life on other planets has ever turned up. Instead of spending billions looking for aliens, researchers should spend a few dollars buying a Bible and learn the answer. God's Word tells us God is the creator and that our earth was formed to be inhabited. 
Earth is the only known planet with everything perfectly balanced and fine-tuned for life to flourish. Now that's observational science. Starting with the Bible, we don't expect to find life throughout the universe, but we should study the heavens anyway because they give glory to their Creator. Subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit AnswersRadio.com and plan your visit to the Ark Encounter when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
the god Klingon. This is Ken Ham, and our popular Ark Encounter attraction is located in northern Kentucky. Studies show half of Americans believe in alien life. Now this idea comes from an evolutionary worldview. If life evolved here, it simply must have evolved somewhere else. Earth just can't be that special. But in a biblical worldview, we don't expect to find intelligent alien life. You see, the Bible tells us all of creation groans from the curse. If there are intelligent aliens out there, they too must suffer from the curse. Yet they aren't descendants of Adam, so they have no hope of being saved. No, Jesus didn't come as a God alien, like a Klingon. He came as the God-man, a relative of Adam, to die in our place. Aliens don't exist. Plan your family's visit to the world-class Ark Encounter by going to AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or view a full transcript at AnswersRadio.com. Writing this to you, I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity, ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago, outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change. You remain the Immutable, beautiful You never change, never change Forever you reign, you remain the same You will never change, you will never change Immutable, beautiful You never change, never change I was thinking just the other day How you reign supreme by far Not just because of what you do But simply because of who you are like you in existence, you are God and you need no assistance Even though we show you resistance, you sent Jesus to close the distance That existed between God and man, according to your sovereign plan We changed many times in one lifespan, I've changed even since this song began Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us, all that you do will certainly last You are the rock that we can trust, shows us back in eternity past As long ago as that was, as long ago as that was You have not changed, Lord As long ago, as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change, you remain the same. Immutable, beautiful. You never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you will never change. Beautiful, beautiful You never change, never change When I think about my ups 
and downs, all of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies, still you pursue relentlessly, at times I wonder how this can be, surely it's because of the cross, when Jesus paid the full penalty, and bore the burden of sin's great cost, I'm saved by grace and faith in God, I look to Christ and I trust he died, so even though I'm being sanctified, I can't be any more justified, his work is finished that cannot change, and with this knowledge I am free, forever this grace it will remain, because of what happened on Calvary. As long ago as that was, as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change, you remain the same. Immutable, beautiful. You never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you will never change. Immutable, beautiful. You never change, never change. Willfully ignorant, this is Ken Ham, hoping you'll visit our life-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati. When astronomers detect some kind of ordered pulse from space, they automatically hope it's evidence of aliens. In fact, objects known as pulsars were originally called LGM. Now this stood for Little Green Men, because researchers thought the pulses must be from aliens. But pulsars are now believed to be rapidly rotating neutron stars. Scientists are eagerly looking for evidence of alien life to prove we're not alone. But here on Earth, we have DNA, a complex language system. It couldn't have originated by itself. Yet that's what most scientists believe. They ignore the striking evidence for the designer because, well, they're willfully ignorant. Discover what the Bible says about creation and the Creator at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive Ken Ham's free daily email insights by going to AnswersRadio.com. Yeah. Man, it's crazy how time flies My mind tries to sit still Thinking how does one define wise Feels like yesterday I was a newcomer Fresh in the game, ready to make the truth thunder But as the beat plays, they lose wonder After a few summers, the band's ready for a new drummer Doesn't matter if you're not ready yet Yesterday I was a cadet, now they call me a vet But it's part of common sense that the artist time will end To the young, this topic can be hard to comprehend They don't come close to understanding How you can go from most demanded To abandoned in the ocean stranded Surrounded by the waves of your weariness Some things you only learn from age and experience And it's plain to me that all the famous men you see The time is coming when they will be a faded memory Cause one day you hot, the next day you not One day you on top, next day you get dropped Yeah, what in the world was your mind thinking? You couldn't see the sand of time sinking Cause one day you hot, the next day you not One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah Better plan for the future, kid Time catches up to everyone, no matter who it is Whatever happened to so-and-so, that's what they wanna know Eventually we learn that they all come and go Today's rising star, tomorrow dies with scars Today they all struck, tomorrow you washed up 
I remember watching Jordan's Hall of Fame speech Thinking this is what it's like to watch the lame reach and gasp As he tries to grasp what lies in the past Never to return, what lies in the past Did he tell himself, was he lost or sober? Did he know it was all but over? The moment that AI crossed him over If I could be like, didn't include dying light Let's shine the light on the one they call Iron Mike Nowadays he's known for being all weird But back in 88, nobody was more feared at the peak of his powers, his opponents would retreat in moments he would eat and devour. Snuffed with punches, but we must discuss this. Crushed it just enough to trust his toughness. Pride brings us to justice. You puffed up with smugness? You gonna meet Buster Douglas. Amazing that, which blazed like Petro. The new praise that made the waves in the metro. Was praised for days, but just a phase like retro. And phase like echoes. Echoes, echoes, echoes. Cause one day you hot, the next day you not One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah What in the world was your mind thinking? You couldn't see the sand of time sinking Cause one day you hot, the next day you not One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah Better plan for the future, kid Time catches up to everyone, no matter who it is What I'm speaking on is seriously welcomed by the few Even no experience to tell you that it's true On your radio station, this won't be found on the playlist Wisdom, the sound of the sages, resounding for ages The older I get, I notice it The whole of the script, hmm, it's found in the pages A holy writ, not the cash speech of the reverend But what a man sees under heaven Ecclesiastes 111 No matter who you are, death aims to stop you Whether banker, doctor, or Frank Sinatra before your time is done, meet the timeless one The dying, death-defying, rising, shining sun King Jesus astounds and amazes He pounded the pavement to save those who were bound to their cages So let us praise the one who made the Everglades Our debt was paid, so in glory we'll never fade Never fade, never fade What was Behemoth? This is Ken Ham, founder of Answers in Genesis and the popular Creation Museum. In the book of Job, God describes an amazing creature. It has a massive belly, bones of bronze, and limbs of iron. It eats grass and moves its tail like a cedar. What is this animal? Well, first we know it's a real creature. God is demonstrating his incredible power to Job by pointing to things he's made that Job's familiar with. Now, some Bible footnotes say behemoth is an elephant or a hippo. Now, they're large and strong, but they certainly don't move their tails like cedars. They have unimpressive little tails. The only creature that really matches God's description, it's a sauropod dinosaur. Behemoth was probably a dinosaur. Plan your visit to the Creation Museum and its dinosaur exhibits by going to our website at AnswersRadio.com and discover answers to your questions at AnswersRadio.com. A frozen earth. 
This is Ken Ham, author of several children's books like D is for Dinosaur and A is for Adam. Astronomers believe our sun is fueled by a fusion of hydrogen and helium deep in its core. But this slowly changes the sun's composition and makes it hotter. And a cooler sun in the past means a cooler temperature for Earth. Now on the evolutionary timescale, the oceans would have been frozen when life was supposed to be evolving three and a half billion years ago. So evolutionists propose rescuing devices such as, well, maybe the atmosphere trapped more heat back then. But these ideas can't be proven. And it's hard to imagine the atmosphere somehow managed to perfectly balance with the sun's output for billions of years. Evolutionary ideas, they're just fairy tales. There's much more to discover when you go to AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive Ken Ham's free daily insights delivered to your inbox at AnswersRadio.com.
word about them, go to gofishguys.com. That's G-O-F-I-S-H-G-U-I-S dot C-O. Gofishguys.com. And then also for more info and how to get albums from Shannon, go to lampmode.com, L-A-M-P-M-O-D-E dot C-O. Lampmode.com. And then uh, Shannon spelled S-H-A-I then L I N N E. And when you go to our website, we got website truthbetoldradio.com. Truthbetoldradio.com. And that's all the show we got for now. Thanks for joining me. And until next time, bye for now. Here's Yancey and Friends with the VRBLE. The B-